Support the Metropolitan Opera Guild like never before. We are proud to announce a unique and exciting online auction benefiting our education programs. You and your friends will have the ability to bid on one-of-a-kind opera memorabilia, luxurious travel packages, exclusive experiences with esteemed opera singers, and much more. Our auction opens on May 14th at 12 noon and is available to the general public through June 4th, ending at 11.59 p.m. Eastern Daylight Savings Time. For more information and to register as a bidder, please visit charityauction.bid slash ONA online auction. Can you name an operatic bass who has starred in performances at the Metropolitan Opera, San Francisco Opera, Lyric Opera of Chicago, Boston Lyric Opera, La Scala, the Sydney Opera House, and many other major opera stages around the world, but who initially thought his future would be found in football, given that he was a three-time nominated All-American linebacker in college? Find out on this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. extraordinaire Morris Robinson didn't seriously begin to pursue opera as a career until he was in his early 30s. Following his college years being dedicated to football, he had a successful career in corporate sales before his path led him to singing opera, and he has been stunning audiences with his sonorous and sublime voice on operatic stages ever since. I'm Naomi Baratera, your host, and on this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, lecturer and music librarian Tanisha Mitchell talks about singers of the past and present who broke barriers, paved the way, and continue to carry the torch in the enduring legacy of Black singers in opera. In this first part of the series, she focuses on male singers spanning the 19th, 20th, and 21st century, including George Shirley, Robert McFerrin, Vincent Cole, Simon Estes, Sir Willard White, Derek Lee Reagan, Eric Owens, Morris Robinson, Russell Thomas, and many more. Thank you. Okay. Good morning, everyone. I'd like to thank you for coming. You could have been anywhere else, but you chose to be here. I always say that, so I am grateful. I'm ever so grateful. I'd like to thank Stuart Holt for engaging me in doing this program and Mackenzie Cole for being such a wonderful help. Um, I appreciate all of you. Now, this is, I would say, an honor to do. Um, I've had people say to me, you look like an opera singer. Well, I am, and I am also a librarian and curator, and um, I do programming throughout Long Island, 
and the programming has to do obviously with opera. Today we have two parts and our first part would be black men in opera. You cannot think of the cultural landscape of opera without thinking about black men. Uh, we all know how difficult it is and how difficult it was. And not only from the industry alone, but also from the, the black culture. And I'll say it, I'm black. And I know that one of the biggest things when you say that you sing opera, nobody ever says, oh, I know who Paul Robeson is. Most people would say, the big fat lady with the horns and the, the, the braids, the blonde braids, Brunhilde. Or they would say to you, you know what? I have a friend that sings opera um, in the church, and she sings Amazing Grace, and so on and so forth. So, oh, and also the last stigma, the Italian big fat man. We all know Luciano Pavarotti, um, a wonderful figure in opera. But we cannot think of opera without black men. And... Um, it's an, an honor, and I just want to tribute this to them. So I will start with a dedication, and my dedication is to all of the black men who are coming up, and they're singing in the industry, and those who are in high school, and they want to do it, and they're being told, oh, I don't know if you should do that, and those who are in college, and they're trying to pay for voice lessons, in order to audition, et cetera, et cetera. We all know that um, black men in opera, there are a plethora of them. There's so many. And um, I cannot have everybody in this lecture. So I'm going to tell you that now. It is not the ring cycle. <laughs> so we are here, and there are many other men that, were not, that are not going to be mentioned today. Uh, but however, I tried to cover as many people, and I do cover people from today. So we start. After the dedication, we're going to look at the voice types. I like to be, uh, I would say, elementary when talking about it, because I do opera lectures also for people who've never been into an opera house. So forgive me if it's a little redundant. But we have our bases our bass baritones, our baritones, our tenors, and countertenors. Countertenors are quite interesting because it's, that's, I think, out of all of these categories, they are the least explored. And in my research, it was really funny, trying to look for a black countertenor. You only get one or two, but you know that many do exist. So each singing part has a different role. You can't paint a big stroke on, I'm just an opera singer. They have a different role in opera with the roles that they play and also the prototype of a character. I like to ask you guys, because I like audience participation, if you are a black man in opera, which one is the hardest, the hardest um, voice to audition for? Let's say it's 1955. Tenor, absolutely. Why? That's right. Number one. And many men in the tenor uh, category, they faced that discrimination or they were told. 
So here we go. Another question. The screen is black because I have a question for you. When you think of a black man who sings opera before Paul Robeson, and Paul Robeson technically did not, but we'll get into that. Who can you name? George Shirley. Okay. Todd Duncan, he did. But let's go, let's go into before the 1920s. Roland Hayes. Let's go before Roland Hayes. Black man in opera. It's quite, quite interesting, right? When I first delved into this, I thought about it. I said, if I were to think of the 1920s before the 1920s, and I thought of a black man who sang opera, the only one I can think of would be the members of the Fisk Jubilee Singers. That's it. And they were in a chorus. But let's look at late 1800s, late 1890s. There was a gentleman named Theodore Drury, a black man who was one of the first of black men in opera who ran his own company. And I was, I was shocked. And I'm just going to read off, however, there is a forgotten hero in opera who beat the odds of not only being a black opera singer, but a successful opera impresario in the early 1900s. Mr. Drury is an unsung hero of the opera world because in 1900, he found an opera company that performed standard operatic repertoire with an African-American cast. At the turn of the 20th century, Drury created a platform for himself when it was socially impossible for black singers to sing in mainstream. And it says an advertisement in 1889 from the New York Age, October 5th, stated that the company owned its costumes, scenery, and decorations and included 15 singers, a musical director, and a pianist. This is amazing. This man did it all. And what's funny is he's fallen into obscurity. A lot of people don't know about him. He, um, when he first did his opera performance, where it debuted in New York City, in the center, he played Don Jose. And I, quite, I found that quite interesting because he was a baritone, according to articles, and we all know those who do know about opera, Don Jose is a tenor role. He also performed as Faust as well. And so in the late 30s, the company fell into obscurity because of lack of funding. But this man was the first mentioned, I would say. There probably have been many more. But in research, I was able to find Mr. Drury. And too bad they didn't have recordings back then. Well, with the exception of the wax cylinder, but that came on along, I think, a little bit later. So we now open our category, the baritone, bass, baritone, bass. I like to tell the audience, who does he play in opera? The father, the wise father. Okay, the conflicted father. Um, he also plays the friend. I always feel bad for Rodrigo and Don Carlo. He plays the friend, the jilted friend. And 
Last but not least, he plays the man who can't keep his hands to himself. He's a lady lover. Who is that character? Don Giovanni. Now I have a question for you. Have you ever, when I think of Don Giovanni, I think of Cesare Siepi. From today, I'm trying to think of somebody who I think would have been a great Don Giovanni, one of my favorites, Dmitry Havorostovsky would have been a great Don Giovanni. He did do it? Okay. Now, can you think of a black man who's played Don Giovanni today? All right, there we go. That's a problem. That's a problem. But now we look at our trailblazers. Now, every category has three categories within. I'm a librarian, so I like to categorize things. We have our trailblazers, our sprinters, and our torchbearers. Our trailblazers are those who opened the door. Our sprinters are those who accomplished what the trailblazers could not accomplish. And our torchbearers are our men from today. And we now start with, everybody will know this guy, our first trailblazer in the bass baritone category never performed on the opera stage. However, he used an operatic vocal technique to perform in theater and film. His voice and dramatic interpretations are unforgettable. Mr. Paul Robeson. Paul Robeson, a prolific artist. He was an actor, a singer, and a political activist. We all know about that. But one thing about him he had the operatic technique, and he used that. He used that in film and theater. And amazingly, at Rutgers University, where he enrolled, he honed in on his theatrical skills, where he became the first black football player. Now, I don't know if this is true or not, but they said that he got hit in the nose with the football, and that helped with the resonance of his voice. You know, if you guys find out for me, I don't want to say it's truth because I haven't heard that he said it. Here is a clip of Mr. Robeson singing Old Man River. We're going to listen to a lot of clips today. And this is from 1936 Showboat. Ask Miss Julie what she thinks. Ask Old River what he thinks. He knows all about them, boys. He knows all about everything. There's an old man called the Mississippi. That's the old man that I'd like to be. What does he care if the world's got troubles? What does he care if the land ain't Just keeps rolling along. 
singing in over 25 languages all over the world. Our next person, who I think is so serendipitous that this is all happening at one time, and I do this because I want to tell you who he is and you guess. Although our next trailblazer became a pioneer in performing opera and concert repertoire in over 50 countries worldwide, he will always be remembered for being handpicked by George Gershwin to perform as the first Porgy in Porgy and Bess in 1935. Can anybody tell me who that is? That is Todd Duncan. Todd Duncan, American baritone, became one of the first African Americans to perform with the New York City Opera, singing the role of Tonio and Leon Cavallo's I Pagliacci. Born in Danville, Kentucky, Duncan attended Butler University and the College of Music. But one thing that is that stands out about his career, and he said he was often blacklisted for it. Um, during the 30s, Duncan was asked to perform Porgy and Bess at the National Theater in Washington, D.C. But at that time, Duncan used his platform to fight to integrate the audience at the National Theater. And he said he would never play in a theater, which barred him from purchasing tickets to certain seats because of his race. This led to the first integrated performance at the National Theater. And one of the other things he said he regretted, he regretted not getting a major recording contract. Because at the time, the company, I believe it was RCA, that he wanted the contract from, told him, we cannot have another Negro on our roster. Marion Anderson is the one that we are taking. This is a clip of him singing, I Got Plenty of Nothing from 1940. This is a sound clip of him. Here we go. I got plenty of nothing, and nothing's plenty for me. I got no car, I got no mule, I got no misery. The folks with plenty of plenty, I got a lock on the door. Wait, somebody's going to rob him while he's out, I'm making more. What for? Now I got no lock on my door, that's no way to be They can steal the rug from the floor, that's okay with me Cause the things that I prize, like the stars in the skies, all are free Oh, I got plenty of nothing, and nothing's plenty for me I got my gal, I got my song, I got a hymn the whole day long. Oh, there's no use complaining. Huh. I got my gal, got my Lord, I got my song. Next one, who had a juicy voice, our last bass baritone in the Trailblazer category, became the first black male soloist to perform at the Metropolitan Opera. A lot of people talk about him now. During the same year as Marian Anderson, 
His son is also a famous musician known for his 1980s hit, Don't Worry, Be Happy. Does anybody know who this is? Robert McFerrin. You were close. Robert McFerrin Sr. On January 27, 1955, Robert McFerrin Sr. made his debut as Amanazro in Verdi's Aida. And he was also the first black male to perform at the Met after winning the Met Auditions of the Air in 1953. He grew up in Tennessee and he said he was only allowed to sing gospel. And we know that that eventually changed. Um, his opera career began in 1949, where he played a small part in Kurt Vile's Lost in the Stars. His career at the Met was brief, um, but he is lauded for his debut. And he said this, I found this quite interesting. I am not attempting to carry the load for all Negro singers. That's, you know, because that's a hard feat. Everybody comes from a different background. And um, I think he was more interested in, let me perform, and then I'll take it from there. Uh, he's also lauded for his teaching. Our next clip is from Act 2, Scene 2. And it's not an aria, because Amanazro doesn't have an aria in Aida. This is a scene um, from Act 2, Scene 2, where Amanazro pretends the Egyptians call him up and they ask, who are you? And he pretends, he says, I, you know, I am from a country where the king did the best that he could do. That's a Tanishaism. Okay. I just wanted to show you here. This is a clip because there aren't a lot of clips of him performing physically. Here we go. Juicy, excuse me. <laughs> what a voice. Now, our sprinters. Our sprinters were able to accomplish more than their trailblazers in opera because the, of the doors that the trailblazers open. And oftentimes, when you have a sprinter and you ask them, who, Who's your um, inspiration? they hearken back to the people from before. 
And our first one, I've actually met him, and he's such a sweet person. Our first sprinter in the bass baritone category uh, made a huge splash when he was the first black singer in 1978 to notably sing a leading role at the prestigious Bayreuth Festival as the title character in Wagner's The Flying Dutchman. Can anybody tell me who this is? Simon Estes. Wow, everybody knew. All right. Simon Estes. He was a student at the University of Iowa. His original intent was to study pre-med. But long story short, this gentleman, uh, faculty member Charles Kellis, inspired him to sing. And he kept Charles Kellis as a teacher. I think Charles Kellis is still alive, and he's still, I think it's over 40 or 50 years they've been together, or 30. I'm not 100% sure, but I know it's a long time, um, because he even told me how Charles Kellis still influences him to this day. Estes enrolled in the Juilliard School in 1964 and made his professional debut in 1965 as Ramvis in Giuseppe Verdi's Aida at the Deutsche Oper Berlin. Uh, he was invited by President Lyndon Johnson to perform at the White House in 1966 after coming in top place uh, in the Tchaikovsky competition. Now, the next clip we are going to hear is from 1981. I purposely did this. 1981 at the Metropolitan Opera, his debut, opposite to Leontine Price singing Amanazro. But this is a different scene. Now, he said this, and I found this quite interesting. He said, Madam Price told him, <clears throat> Simon, it's going to be even more difficult for you. Because you are a black male, the discrimination will be greater. Uh, you have a beautiful voice. You are musical, intelligent, independent, and handsome. With all of these ingredients, you are a threat. It will be more difficult for you than it was for me. Now, we know Leontine Price faced death threats, uh, and we'll talk about that later. However, one would hope that that has changed. Here is Simon Estes in the duet with Aida as Amanazro, 1981. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> 
What a booming voice, and his repertoire also, I think he excelled a, a great deal in Wagner. Now, our next gentleman is the first of our talented black men in opera born outside of the United States, who was inspired by Paul Robeson throughout his career. Uh, this gentleman here, he has an excellent performance he did of Porgy and Porgy and Bess, conducted by Sir Simon Rattle, opposite Cynthia Heyman, and it's all over YouTube. However, we're not going to hear him do that today. Sir Willard White plays a pivotal role in the cultural landscape of black opera singers, often, I would say, the black diaspora of opera singers. That means it encompasses all, not just those that are from America, those that are from overseas. And it's interesting that those that are from overseas, they hearken back to the African-American singers. I find that quite interesting. Born in Kingston, Jamaica, White began his music journey by singing Nat King Cole songs. And they say there's always that period of time in a singer's lives when Somebody discovers them along the way. And this person was Evelyn Rothwell, the wife of conductor Sir John Barberoli. And she suggested that he study in London. But instead, his, his father brought him a one-way ticket because it was the cheapest <laughs> way to go out of Jamaica and um, to New York City. And he won a scholarship and continued his studies with bass Giorgio Totsi. Uh, at the Juilliard School. And he was selected by Maria Callas to participate in those famous master classes she gave from 1971 to 1972. And his first debut with a major opera company, uh, he played Colinet in Puccini's La Boheme, and the rest is history. We have Royal Opera House, a Royal Opera House debut in 1978 in Meyer Bears L'Africaine, and we go on to White making his debut in 2000 as Golo in Debussy's Peleas et Melisande. Uh, he's performed at the top opera houses alike here and there. And I've, what I find interesting with all of these men, color always comes up. So that's why you see these quotes. It always comes up, even if they haven't blatantly experienced it. If they have an interview, somebody asks them about it, and this is what he said uh, in a poignant interview. Here is White as Votan. I love his Votan. This is Act Three of Die Valkyrie, when um, Brunhilde she is punished, and Votan puts a ring of fire around Brunhilde for her disobedience. This is Willard White. Oh! 
a singer and I will say this there are there are few singers in opera and this is black and white and, and Spanish and all international alike and they play a role and whenever you think of the role you think of that singer this gentleman is the case for me I would say and uh, the role is I'm not going to tell you what the role is I'm not going to tell you but his repertoire spans also from Wagner to Verdi to Gershwin and with some Verismo in between, to name a few. He's performed under the baton of many prestigious conductors. If you see his name, you probably will know. Has anybody heard of Greg Baker? Yes, Greg Baker made his huge debut at the Metropolitan Opera as Crown in 1985 and a star-studded Porgy and Best production. Can anybody tell me who was the best in that production? 1985. Grace Bumbry. Grace Bumbry. And who was Porgy? Simon Estes. See how it's all connected? Well, this gentleman is a successful Broadway performer, and that's why his path is quite interesting because out of all of the men that we've seen so far, we haven't seen someone who started in Broadway, and he did. Um, the Metropolitan Opera heard his performance in Radio City Music Hall as Crown, and they engaged him immediately. Now, this was during his late 20s, and so he, after that, he returned to the Met singing the role of the High Priest in Sanson, Samson and Delilah, Amanazro in Verdi's Aida, Escamillo in Bizet's Carmen, and the list goes on and on. Um, one of the uh, debuts that he also made that I think is very important uh, was Richard in Richard Daniel Poor's Margaret Garner, playing opposite to Denise Graves. Greg Baker, I believe, is an unsung hero. Uh, but I will say, for me, when I think of Crown in Porgy and Bess, I think of Greg Baker. And here we have him singing the famous aria, well, Crown's famous aria, A Red-Headed Woman. Make the choo-choo jump his tracks. Here we go. A red-headed woman, make the choo-choo jump his tracks. Make a 
with our torchbearers, our men from today. And I know everyone knows who this gentleman is, Eric Owens. What a major torchbearer Eric Owens is. And he is one of the stars of the historic Porgy and Bess here at the Met and lauded as one of the industry's premier bass baritones. Owens' 2019-2020 season includes his return to Lyric Opera Chicago as Voltan in Sir David Putney's production of Wagner's Ring Cycle. Um, he also makes his role debut as King Mark in Wagner's Tristan und Isolde at Santa Fe Opera. Uh, the list goes on and on. Uh, this gentleman, I find him very inspirational. He has multi-Grammy awards, and I believe out of the gentlemen that you've heard, he is one of the first in his category. A Grammy Award is big. And he's also a 2003 recipient of the Marian Anderson Award. That opened a lot of doors for black singers. A Philadelphia native, do you know he started out as an oboe player? And that's what he was going to do. And we know that shifts change in life. And I wanted this. I didn't choose Porgy because we all know that's what he's doing. I chose this character from 2012. He made a huge splash as Alberich in Wagner's Das Rheingold. Here is Eric Owens bossing his brother around, Mima. Um, he's playing opposite Gerard Siegel as Mima. Geschmiedet und fertig gefügt, wie ich befahl, 
So wollte der Tropfschlau mich betrügen, für sich erhalten das ihre Geschmeid, das meine List ihm zu schmieden gelebt. Kenn ich dich, dummen Dieb. That's a memorable role. Our last person before we go on to the tenors is Morris Robinson. Morris Robinson is a bass, and his story is quite interesting because it's, it's similar to Paul Robeson because he was a football player. Um, he was an all-American football player, and the rest is history. He is now one of the basses in opera that's, that's in high demand Now, his 2019-20 season included, he was in the Magic Flute as the Rastro, and he also has done, he makes his role debut, excuse me, as Philip II in Don Carlo uh, at the Dallas Opera. And he returns to Atlanta Opera for Porgy and Bess, that's a big one, in March. He debuted as Porgy. Now, remember I was saying, Some of these characters, the, the voices are interchangeable. No one would really think that a bass would sing Porgy and Bess, would sing Porgy. Porgy, is, they say, is for a bass baritone. However, he is able to sing this role. He made the role debut of Porgy in the Teatro alla Scala at, in Milan. I close this out with the latter part of Old Man River, as a tribute to all of the men that came before him. Morris Robinson, Old Man River, the end of the selection. This is from Houston Grand Opera's production of Showboat. A tenor in opera is either the young boyish character who gets the lady in the end, okay? He's naive, he's sweet, the audience loves him. Nemorino is an excellent example. But then the tenor can be virile and sexual like Othello or perhaps one of my favorite roles, Cavradossi in Tosca, or even Canio in I Pagliacci. Now, that's a big problem if you are in a society where interracial relationships, even in some places, are legally not allowed. And I think that that's one of the, I, I would say that's one of the themes of this that a lot of men in opera say. Um, the tenors have the hardest time. Uh, we know that today is a lot better than it was years ago. Our trailblazer, I'm not going to tell you who he is, but this is a special clip from Marian Anderson's documentary in 1998. It's called A Voice Heard Once in a Hundred Years, and this is rare footage of this 
special tenor singer who never performed on the operatic stage, like uh, Paul Robeson. Never did, okay? However, he financed his career. He worked in insurance, and he was able to finance his career and also finance a New York Town Hall debut. Here's Marian Anderson speaking about this gentleman. She was not alone in defying insulting images of black Americans. She had long drawn strength for that struggle from Roland Hayes. He preceded her in the concert world, performing both classical and spiritual songs. Hayes was also a personal role model for Marian Anderson. My hero was Roland Hayes. He was a tremendous figure in the concert world. He carried with him a wonderful manner. He came in my early years to our church every year to give what the Reverend Parks, our pastor, called Star Concert. And I know when one day the person at our church who was looking after the music said, how would you like to sing on the program with Roland Hayes? Well, I don't know how I slept those days preceding the appearance. But like everything, so does time pass by for even that. And it was, I understand, I suppose, many people who clapped for me because I was a member of the church, not because I was delivering that particular day, because my mind and I were so far apart. Like Roland Hayes, Marian Anderson found that spirituals offered a way to confront the realities of American racism. Spirituals spoke to the difficulty of being black even for a successful concert performer. And just because of that, we're going to hear Roland Hayes sing a spiritual swing low sweet chariot. Uh, what I love is that this man financed his career and he was very instrumental in the careers of Marian Anderson, as you saw, but also Leontine Price, very instrumental in connecting them uh, to a bigger platform. I love what Marva Griffin Carter says. She wrote, wrote about him in The Black Perspective. She says, Hayes' life of almost 90 years he lived to be reveals a remarkable story of a man who went from the plantation to the palace, performing before kings and queens with the finest international and American orchestras in segregated communities before blacks and whites alike. When he sang art became more than polished excellence, it appealed to something beyond the intellect, something one could call the soul. Mr. Hayes was also the first black person to sing with a major orchestra, uh, the Boston Symphony Orchestra in 1923. Here is Roland Hayes singing, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. Swing low, sweet chariot. 
Our next person is a sprinter, and I had the privilege of singing for him in a master class years ago. Um, and also, he is credited for teaching Michael Fabiano, our young, exciting Italian-American tenor. Uh, this towering figure in the opera industry is a huge inspiration because he became an international sensation as a black tenor in a time when interracial relationships were taboo, not only off stage but on stage. Can anybody tell me who he is? I know I didn't say his name, did I? George Shirley. Yes, George Shirley, uh, a fine gentleman, a uh, wonderful person to speak to about opera. George Shirley was the first African-American tenor contracted by the Met on October 24, 1961. He made his debut as Ferrando in Mozart's Così Fan Tutte. In 1961, Mr. Shirley won first prize in the Metropolitan Opera Auditions. And he played opposite many famous singers, including Leontine Price and Shirley Verrett, who you will hear about later. And trivia, he was the first African-American high school music teacher in Detroit and sang with the U.S. Army Chorus. In 2015, he received the National Arts Awards, and he's currently teaching at the University of Michigan. Now, that quote, he says, among Mr. Shirley's role models, he mentioned Roland Hayes, the first superstar black tenor, as well as opera singer Marian Anderson and concert singer Paul Robeson. He says, all of these people had a dignity about them that I admired. I admired how they carried themselves. They didn't beg for respect, but they commanded it. This is a clip of George Shirley singing Ferrando's aria from Cosi Fan Tutte. And in this aria, he says, my love is a flower. Here is the beautiful aria from Cosi Fan Tutte. It's charm and 
Shirley is also credited. Beautiful. He is He's a lot of people say, well, he plays a lot of Mozart roles, uh, but he's also credited for performing as Pinkerton in Puccini's Madame Butterfly. Now, this next person, this is personal for me. This is personal because this is the question of critics, music critics to your legacy. This is a question of it. Uh, our next tenor was not as well known as his predecessor and didn't do as many media interviews. But I think he's important because he became a go-to tenor for Compromaria roles. And you will see, I, I just, it, I have to be honest with you. When I first saw him playing in Puccini's uh, Manon Lescaut, he was the only black person in the cast. Um, and I just wondered, who is this man? And I found out that a staff member of the Freeport Library went to school with him um, in Hempstead. It was so serendipitous. He sang at the Met from the late 70s into the late 90s. His name, I, I know that some people have heard of him, Philip Creech. And Philip Creech passed away in 2017. But his consistent presence on the Metropolitan Opera roster and as a recitalist throughout the United States is a testament that one can shine in classical music without huge recognition from critics. Creech stayed on the Metropolitan Opera roster for 18 seasons and sang 264 performances. That is a feat. It's a feat to get one performance there. And he did 264. His company debut was as Beppe in Leon Cavallo's Pagliacci in 1979. He impressively performed a wide array of roles, including 26 radio broadcasts and five live from the Met telecasts. This was before live in HD. And includes, it includes Puccini's um, Il Tritico in Gianni Schicchi. He was Rinuccio. And um, also he played other roles like Ilas in Berlioz Le Troyen. This is a clip of him singing as Edmondo in Puccini's Manon Lescaut. Um, I, what's important about him, I think is very, very important, is that you didn't see a lot of black singers in compromario roles during this time. A compromario role is just as important as a famous person said, there are no small parts on stage. Compromario is, he's the secondary or tertiary role. So if you have the tenor and the soprano, okay, he's usually, he could be any, he could be a bass baritone, he can be a tenor, and he's usually maybe the friend that says, hey, don't go after her. Or he could be the friend that, that says, um, that's the funny person that says, you know what, maybe you should, but just caution. He's always the, the side character, but they are just as important. You can make a huge career doing compromario roles. If you've heard of Nico Castell, there you go. If you haven't heard about him, look him up. All right, here is Philip Creech. Oh, my 
fronte a fronte, fresche e ruine e belle, le nostre amicianelle. Non sono mai di ora, non vado in male, adesso arrivo in alto, vengono a fronte a fronte, le nostre amicianelle. He's one of the singers that I wish I could have spoken to, but it was too late. Our next shining tenor, last of the sprinter category, impressively beat the odds faced by other tenors of color by leading a career that's dreamed of by many. This man was the pinch hitter for Luciano Pavarotti, so much so that he was asked to, um, to cover for Pavarotti for the Verdi Requiem, but the Met wouldn't release him because he was already covering for Pavarotti in another production. Uh, does anybody know who this gentleman is? You're going to see. He performed at the Venerable Salzburg Festival for nine years, and that's a huge feat. Vincent Cole. And Vincent Cole, a native of Kansas City, studied at the Conservatory of Music and Dance at the University of Missouri. And um, he also studied at the Curtis Institute. After making stellar debuts in Europe, he won the Met Opera auditions. Isn't that quite interesting? That seems to be a pattern for many of these singers. And many um, awards he has received and grants the Rockefeller Foundation, and National Opera Institute grants. But as I said, Cole became the go-to tenor for many established stars like Luciano Pavarotti. And in a New York Times interview in 1986, he stated, and I was asked to substitute for Pavarotti in the last of four requiems by the New York Philharmonic on December 16th, but I was already covering for the tenor and D. Flatermouse. And he also made his Met Opera debut as um, Eisenstein in Deflator Mouse. I find this quote very poignant, the one that is up there, but he also said, I never encountered prejudice until I really got into this business. I'll just leave it there. This is Vincent Cole singing the beautiful tenor aria at the Salzburg Festival. Um, conducted by Von Karajan, um, the tenor aria where the scene where the tenor comes in and sings to the beautiful Marshallin after she's had her tryst. If you haven't seen the opera, you need to see it, of Dear Rosen Cavalier. This is Vincent Cole.
Oh my gosh. I wish I was the Marshallin right now. <laughs> that was so beautiful. But we have to move on from Mr. Vincent Cole to our torchbearers. We are winding down, and the torchbearers contain two tenors that play those different type of roles. Remember, I said, number one, the boyish figure. He's naive, yet he's in love, and he wins. Then you have the virile uh, tenor, who is sexual, and he has many emotions. Two that I think are worthy of speaking about is, first one, Lawrence Brownlee. What a voice. I, um, whenever I watch him do a coloratura passage, I get breathless because I said he has such a huge capacity um, to hold a line so long, which you are about to see. But he is in high demand as one of the premier tenors of his field today. He is a regular at the Metropolitan Opera as well as the Royal Opera House in Covent Garden, and the list goes on and on. The 2019-2020 season began with a return to Lyric Opera of Chicago where he performed the Count Almaviva, which he is here, and um, under Sir Andrew Davis, followed by Dutch National Opera for another Rossinian comedy uh, favorite as Don Ramiro in La Cenerentola. Uh, Brownlee has also been a passionate advocate for diversity initiatives. This past, I, I believe in January, he did a, a concert with the Houston Grand Opera and he did spirituals with other black singers. And he also has a song cycle that he performed called Cycles of My Being. If you haven't heard it and you can, please try to hear it. It is about the black male experience in America. Um, the list goes on and on. I say the sky is the limit, and the sky is the limit for this man. He was rejected from Juilliard, but worked harder and won the Met National Councils in 2001. Here is Mr. Brownlee, 2014, singing Barbara of Seville, Count Almaviva, opposite the lovely um, Isabel Leonard. She's not singing in this clip, but you do see her. I wish I were her in this clip. Here we go.
Our last of the tenor category as we close in on the end of this program is Russell Thomas. Russell Thomas is amazing because he does the other type of tenor role, the virile tenor. Um, he is an amazing young tenor, and he continues to defy the odds that were endeared by, endured, excuse me, by his predecessors. Thomas's light continues to shine brightly because he is becoming high in demand for becoming, uh, performing star tenor roles, including Manrico in Verdi's Trovatore, which he debuted at the Lyric Opera of Chicago in 2018, Titus and Mozart's La Clemenza di Tito in L.A. Opera, and this was a groundbreaking debut, as you see pictured, as Othello at the Canadian Opera. He made a huge splash. And that Othello, I believe, led to so many other door-opening opportunities um, he will also be at the historic and prestigious Salzburg Festival performing as Idomeneo. He is a product of many young artist programs, including the Lindemann Young Artist Program, Seattle Opera, to name a few. This is Russell Thomas's splashing debut as Othello. This is a short clip from Canadian Opera. The sky is the limit for him. And um, I have not seen a black tenor being contracted as a Manrico uh, so, or an Othello. Yes. Here we go. The sky is the limit. He's just starting. So let's look at his career in the next five years. We close out the tenors. And our last category of the, the morning is the countertenor. And um, serendipity comes back, and you'll know why. But the countertenor is quite interesting because we know that the countertenor roles are mainly in Handel operas. And back during those times, we had the castrati. Well, we no longer have the castrati. Now, if you don't know what the castrati is, that's a singer, a male singer, who was castrated to preserve his high-pitched voice. So we don't do castrations today, thankfully. But what happens in the opera industry is that you have the opportunity to either hire a countertenor or a mezzo-soprano. And so we have, for example, the other program that I did on Orfeo. You had um, Jamie Barton at the time was singing Orfeo. Well, a countertenor was covering her. So that's what happens. You have a larger, um, I would say, selection 
versus the other categories. You're not going to hire a tenor to sing Don Giovanni. That's not going to happen unless he makes that switch. And this, I would say this is the most obscure of all of these categories because you don't really see countertenors in operas like Verdi operas. There's always an exception, but you don't see them there. Our trailblazer actually performed at the Met. He was contracted to perform eight times. He's regarded as one of the foremost, <clears throat> excuse me, countertenors of his day and was also considered the master of Baroque vocal style. I really can't think of another countertenor of note during this time. This is the 1980s, early 90s. And I will excuse if there were, I apologize, but I cannot think of anybody other than Derek Lee Reagan. Derek Lee Reagan. I learned, I actually learned about Derek Lee Reagan again, high school uh, student learning how to sing opera. And I went to the library. And I saw this cover of Orfeo and Eurydice, and there was a black gentleman on the cover. Now, you know, I just started to learn it. I said, who is this guy? What is he singing? That was my introduction to Derek Lee Reagan. I want to start with his quote first, which is quite interesting, and then I'll get into some biographical material. He was asked in this uh, there was this, this series in 2000 called Aria and Pasta, and he was featured. He was one of the opera singers featured, and he was asked, um, if you had to do it all over again, would you go the route that you did? And he said, no, I would do popular music first. And he said, I have, while I haven't faced discrimination, a lot of my male counterparts who sing tenor roles have faced it. And he said, if we have to continue to do what Paul Robeson and Marian Anderson did after all these years, then we won't continue to do it at all. And you can read the rest of that. Just to get into some biographical information, he was born in West Point, New York, raised in Newark, New Jersey. And he began his formal training at the Newark Boys Chorus School. Um, after attending Oberlin College, Oberlin, excuse me, Conservatory of Music, where he majored in piano and music education. He won first prize in the 1983 Purcell Britain um, Prize competition. The rest is history. He eventually crossed paths with Sir John Elliott Gardner. And after that, he made his Metropolitan Opera debut and also did very uh, venerable concerts with the Salzer Salzburg Festival. Has anybody seen the movie Farinelli? Well, you hear Farinelli's voice. It is his voice. His voice is one of the voices. They synthesized the voices, and he lent his voice to that. So I would like you to hear his coloratura because that's very prominent um, for this type of voice type, and we will hear that now. This is from Handel's Tamerlano. A dispetto. A dispetto tu lo fai bravo, tu stai a fare, tu stai a fare, tu stai a 
Makes you breathless, right? That is amazing. We now move on because there are not a lot of black countertenors out there um, that's doing what this gentleman is doing. Our torchbearer and last person of the morning um, is quite interesting because in when I did Orfeo, and I said, when I did the Orfeo lecture, Jamie Barton was Orfeo. This gentleman was her cover, John Holiday. Now, very excellent voice, as you will hear. And John Holiday says that his inspiration was Derek Lee Reagan. And um, it's interesting because he was a 2014 Operelia winner, and he continues to break down doors. He's currently in the L.A. Opera's production of Eurydice, and uh, which is a world premiere. Awards include the 2013 Gerda Listener International Vocal Competition, the 2012 Sullivan Foundation Award, and the 2011 Dallas uh, Opera Guild Award. I, the sky is the limit for him. The thing about this is that not a lot of people, not a lot of opera companies perform Baroque all the time. So he does do other, uh, other music genres, including, I think he was at the Apollo over the summer, doing other music genres, including jazz and R&B. He made a historic L.A. opera debut in 2014, where he sang opposite two black countertenors, Daryl Taylor and G. Thomas Allen in Henry Purcell's 1689 opera, Dido and Aeneas. I, the sky is the limit. Here is a selection of John Holiday singing Come Nube as Nerone in Agrippina. And, you know, Agrippina is playing now with the lovely Joyce Di Donato. I end this morning with John Holiday, and I thank you. And this is another example of coloratura to end your morning. Here we go, because we're almost in the afternoon. John Holiday. Sky is the limit for everyone. 
But I'd like to say, I'd like to make a special thank you to Robert Sutherland, the Metropolitan Opera Chief Librarian. Um, I would not have been able to cut these clips to the, the appropriate uh, position without a score. So there's a lot of work behind the scenes with this. So I dedicate this to him. This is his last season as a chief librarian. He's been here, I think, over 25 years. So um, I'd just like to say thank you, Mr. Sutherland. Yes, he is. He's a sweet person. So thank you. Thank you very much. That was lecturer Tanisha Mitchell discussing the contribution of legendary Black singers who broke barriers to perform all over the world, from La Scala to the Metropolitan Opera House and beyond. Famous singers from the past and present can currently be seen streaming at metopera.org. Be sure to follow the Metropolitan Opera, the Metropolitan Opera Guild, and Opera News on your favorite social media platforms to keep up with all things opera. I'm your host, Naomi Baratera, and thanks for listening.